when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. President-elect Donald Trump doesn't just use his phone for tweeting. Apparently, he's also taking and making frequent calls with other world leaders. And hey, it's good to get to know other people. But there is some concern that Trump's communications abroad are being done off the cuff without the benefit of briefing from the foreign policy community. And in a couple of examples, his mere phone calls have had the potential to undo longstanding foreign policy goals and alliances. So should this worry us? We are about to find out. Meanwhile, Republicans in Congress are already making plans to fulfill one of their long-standing goals, the complete and total dissolution of Obamacare. But there's a catch. Right now, the GOP doesn't have a plan in place to serve as a replacement. It's been sort of an ongoing thing with them, actually. So with the chance to repeal now looming, Republicans are looking to pull off a maneuver called repeal and delay. That is, if they can convince everyone in their caucus to go along with it. Finally, has the Democratic Party lost its populist soul? The 2016 election definitely has raised this question. But if we're being honest, the Democratic Party has been gradually forfeiting their claims to the working class over the course of several decades. So how did it all fall apart? Matt Stoller of the New America Foundation joins us to explain where everything went wrong. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Schulberg. Here's what happened first. Hello, good morning, good evening, good whatever it is you're doing. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your Huffington Post account of the week that was and the misery into which we've all been introduced on a regular basis. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Beat the Press, and we're going to get started today, uh, joined by our good friend Arthur Delaney. Hi. Our constant in this sea of turmoil, Arthur Delaney. Life is pain. <laughs> Thank you for filling in with uh, Zach's uh, favorite thing. Um, and we've got Jonathan Cohn here. Hello. Welcome to Washington, D.C. The place feels different since I was here last. When were you here last? Before the election. Okay, yeah, things have changed. Yes, they have. There have been a few subtle changes you may have noticed. Yes. 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 And um, so uh, we're going to talk about something that's going to be kind of a not-so-subtle change coming soon to our lives. It's something we've broached before, uh, previously on post-election editions of the podcast, but it's useful to have your perspective on this. We're going to talk about uh, the future of Obamacare and the future of the people who currently are on Obamacare. Um, big changes are afoot, I, I think it's fair to say. I think it is very fair to say. Um, you know, the Republicans are not wasting time. They've made very clear what their plan is. They are, they are doing what's been, you know, called repeal and delay. So they, you know, they act very quickly. They get in the, you know, January, Senate. And then Tom DeLay is there for some <laughs> reason. A, that would be interesting. Would be no, amazing. no. He probably uh, is he's there. He's probably there, right? I mean, he's yeah. lurking, doing, oh, isn't he? Is Lobbyist he, or something. I, don't know. I can't remember what he's yeah. doing now. Um, no, so they, they vote very quickly. 
to to uh, on a on a bill that would basically strip out all the money from the program. The next Congress, the next Congress. I mean, right off the bat, in January before Trump takes office, they 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 use the budget reconciliation process, which you can only use for 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 you know parts of a law that involve money, and they strip out all the money, all the funding. And they cancel out all the spending. So that's like, you know, all the tax credits that people are getting to buy private insurance on the exchanges and all that money going to the states to pay for the big expansion of Medicaid. That money goes away. But and here's the here's the little twist, right, is they say, hey, we know there are like more than 20 million people who are getting insurance through the Affordable Care Act. We supposedly we don't want to hurt these people. We don't want to leave them stranded. So we'll let that money continue to flow for some period of time, and they're arguing about how long it's going to be, one year, two years, three years. And the idea is that for that period of time, people who uh, are on Obamacare right now, they're on the Medicaid expansion or they're buying private insurance with these tax credits, they'll get to keep doing it for two or three years. And Republicans, they, they promise they are, they, are, they are really, this time they really mean it, they are going to use that time to craft a new health care scheme, a replacement for Obamacare that We've been told by President-elect Trump, he was very clear about, you know, great health care for less costs. Tremendous health care. Tremendous. And at times, uh, Donald Trump has said it was unacceptable for people in America to be sick or dying in the streets. He is, you know. Leading me to wonder if he's some kind of like stealth uh, single payer type. You know, uh, he has said on more than one occasion, you know, he was asked about this and, you know, he said everyone's got to be covered. I mean, there were times he sounded like he was to the left of. Bernie Sanders. Now, my theory on this is that Donald Trump has spent maybe 14 and a half minutes, you know, thinking about health policy. I would not be shocked to learn that he actually doesn't even understand how the Affordable Care Act works and, you know, what he wants. Does he know what he wants instead? I have no idea. But whether he knows what he wants is an open question. Whether that matters to some extent, it's an open question. I mean, he's just going to sort of delegate this all off to Mike Pence, who I think does know what he wants, and I think he's on, you know. Knows. So Donald Trump, big question mark. Congressional Republicans, not so we, we know they have a long record of being against Obamacare. They can use budget reconciliation, which means in the Senate they don't need 60 votes per custom. They can just do it with the 50-vote uh, majority that they've got. So that makes it look like they're really serious about this, but I wonder if they are. I wonder if they really have the guts to move forward with uh, and with a move that will create an avalanche of headlines about 20 million people getting screwed over, like literally screwed over, health insurance taken away, can't see the doctor anymore, when even the act of repealing and delay will cause the, the market disruption that you, Jonathan Cohen, have reported it will. Like, it, the consequences will be immediate. Will they really do it? Right. So, I mean, uh, I don't know whether they're... They sure sound like they're going to do it. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm sort of astonished. This is a, a, a massive leap they're about to take. You know, I mean, they're basically going to set off a ticking time bomb on America's healthcare system. Just let it go. And you would think there would be some lead-up to that. You would think there would be some, some caution or pause. And, I mean, it's funny. You listen... To Republican leaders, they don't sound conflicted. They don't sound like, you know, they're at all worried about this. I don't know if this is just their spin or whether they have convinced themselves that nobody depends on this program or that everybody hates it. Um, you know, look, look, we've talked about this. You've written, but we've all written about this. I mean, 
Affordable Care Act. It's got its upsides, its downsides. Some things are working well. Some things aren't. Lord knows you could come up with a better system. On the other hand, it's hard to create any system in Congress, and it's done a huge amount of good. But you don't hear – I mean, these guys, are they're, they're, they – I, I think they're going to do it. I mean, they're talking like they're going to do it. And I, I'm frankly a little astonished they don't seem more now, concerned about it. Now, in the Senate, people like Lamar Alexander, who are you know a very influential Republican, a uh, member of a key committee that's in charge of health policy, has said you cannot do repeal without a replacement, which I would take to mean you can't repeal with an IOU for a replacement. So it just it strikes me that they don't have an agreement as a as a caucus on what to do. So I, I, I would say if you are looking for a reason to think that they won't do this, that those comments from Alexander are your best. That's where you want to hang mm. all your hopes right mm. now. Because A, he said that very clearly. B, he's a senior, very respected member of the caucus. He's in charge of the Senate Health Committee, which has actually got jurisdiction over this. And, you know, if you know, he's got a reputation, I think, as a grown-up. I mean, he's someone, you know, a little bit more of a throwback. I mean, yes. he's, he's very conservative, but, you know, he believes, you know, you're governing, you need to be responsible about these things. You don't just say, we're going to rip this thing up, and hopefully in two or three years, maybe we'll have something in its place. So uh, I think he believes that. Susan Collins, you know, uh, has also expressed reservations. <laughs> That's uh, what she does. Exactly, right? I mean, Susan Collins always <laughs> expresses reservations. reservations I think some... only car rental people express yeah, more reservations. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, look, I, I'm, I am not... That was, you know, that was good. Thank you. Uh, uh, I am not the world's leading expert on Capitol Hill. My operating assumption is that it would theoretically it would take three Republicans to thwart a reconciliation bill, right? Because they'll probably have a fifty-two sure, yeah. majority, and the tie, Mike Pence would break it. Yeah. My operating assumption is that it's going to have to be more than that, because there's no way Alexander and Collins and fill in the blank third Republican are going to be out there on an island alone holding this thing up against the fury of the right wing, which thinks that, like, this has to happen yesterday. Well, I mean, and the fury of the right wing is another potential bog down in this whole plan. There are expressions among the members of the so-called Freedom Caucus, which have not necessarily dominated the House procedure, but have certainly risen up now and again to throw a wrench in the works. They're balking at the whole idea that once this is repealed, that there's any kind of like three year off ramp. They want the whole thing gone, done and dusted instantaneously. And that's something that I think really conflicts with what Paul Ryan's talking about. And, and there and this is the exact pattern that has prevented the House from doing almost an, anything. anything. Like yeah. with food stamps. They wanted a chopped up farm bill. Farm bill is what contains food stamps. And they didn't get it, so they wound up not accepting deeper cuts than they could have had through a more regular process. They screw things up. Yeah, they screw things up. But, you know, I've been wondering and pondering how the Republicans solve the PR problem of this. Because when uh, – back before the, uh, the – the, I think the 2012 election – um, sorry, no. During during the run of the 2014 election, apologies. Um, 
a lot of hay was made of the fact that Barack Obama had made this sort of oblique promise. If you like your plan, you can keep it. And of course, in the in the process of moving the Obamacare market hither and yon, a lot of people, a not insignificant number, but not tremendous amount of people got ground up in the gears of that market motion. Yep. And they did experience a uh, loss of health care, a loss of health care that perhaps they didn't realize wasn't ideal, but they lost it all the same. And it created uncertainty for them. And that caused tremendous turbulence for the Obama administration and for Democrats down ticket because there were story after story after story of people who uh, claimed, either plausibly claimed or were, in fact, people who were ground up in the gears of this. And that wasn't 20 million people potentially losing their health care. So I'm wondering, what do you think, how do you think the Republicans solve the potential PR nightmare beyond this whole like hope that in three years, once everyone's walked off this one wing of the plane, there'll be another wing of the plane underneath them? Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know what they're thinking. I mean, the numbers, I, I, I've gone through this exercise, I've looked at the numbers. How many people actually lost their plans? And, and we should say, as somebody who does health policy, the, 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 this universe of people buying coverage on their own and buying is not something we had of great data on from before. So all it's hard to get really firm numbers on any of this stuff, but you're probably talking about somewhere between two, two and a half million people who actually had plans canceled. Might have been more. There are some counts put it higher, but like the best studies I've seen, you're talking about two, two and a half million people. You have an, a fairly large number in addition to that, a couple million more, who clearly were able to get insurance cheaper before, and, and, and their plans didn't necessarily get canceled, but the prices went up. Yeah. And, and they saw that. And look, this is, I, I, I think, you know, looking back, not talking about that enough beforehand and making clear that, look, this is a complicated law and there's going to be displacement, and, you know, some people are going to be better off, but some people won't see feel better off right away, and here's why. And, and that was a failure on the administration. There's a real I, – I don't minimize that. I think, you know, this, this was hard on a lot of people. People are paying a lot of money now. They, they you know, So I want to be clear about that. But when you look at the number of people involved and you compare that to, as you said, more than 20 million people who just lose health insurance. I mean, most of those people who got plans canceled, their price went up, they still got health insurance. Right. And they may not have – the plan may have not – they may not have felt it was as good as the plan they had before or it cost more. But at the end of the day, it, you know, because of Obamacare, it had to meet certain standards. It had to cover all their benefits. You know, it couldn't be written, you know, canceled at the – you know, randomly because the insurance company was losing money on them. They didn't have to worry that they were going to hit a lifetime limit. We're now talking about peeling all that stuff back. These 20 million people lose health insurance. They lose it all, right? Yeah. I mean, if there's nothing there for them, there's nothing. And that's a much bigger deal, and it's many more people. And, and you've seen the numbers. A lot of these people live in places like, oh, I don't know, Ohio, yeah. uh, Michigan, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania yeah. North Carolina. North Carolina and Florida, oh, my God. I mean, the numbers are staggering in those states. Because Donald it's... Trump won't like that. To me, it's always been sort of about the universe of of, of harm and 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 what universe was arrayed against it. One of the I think the, the big things that Obamacare suffered from was that in the world of people who had opinions on Obamacare, it included everyone who wasn't affected by the law. Yeah, I, 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 you know, obviously a lot of Americans had opinions on Obamacare. They didn't like it, but it also didn't touch them. It also didn't touch them. It didn't affect them in one way, shape, or form. And like those opinions governed how Obamacare was widely felt among the public and how the media treated Obamacare whenever they talked about it. And uh, I could easily see, you know, unless these 20 million people get so screwed and so enraged that they're able to so discontent among the broader electorate, I could easily see the repealing of Obamacare, the elimination of Obamacare and the harm being done. And yet the rest of the universe who previously didn't like it but weren't affected by it says, good, it's gone. Cool, good. I feel good about the fact that it's gone. 
it's like kind of a weird uh, it's not just a public relations problem for the Republicans. It becomes one for the Democrats as well. Yeah, but the just hatred of insurance. I mean, everything that health insurance does is Obamacare right it's now. True. Yeah, it's true. That's not right. gonna. I mean, so yeah, right. I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, part of the problem with Obamacare was, you know, Obama and the Democrats own the entire healthcare system now, right? Including stuff that, like, you know, they they had nothing to do with. Um, you know, I, I can imagine. You know, number one biggest predictor of how you feel about Obamacare is your partisan identity. Sure. Just yeah. like you said, very few people directly identify. The one thing I keep, the two things I, I keep, if I if I were a Democrat and trying to think of like how can I make, you know, how can I get the political advantage here, not to get elected, but you know, so that at some point can either stop this from happening or rebuild something afterwards. The two things Democrats have going for them is that one constant, even at, when Obamacare, even in this election, ask voters, who do you trust more on health care, Democrats or Republicans? It's always Democrats. It's, it's like, you know, it doesn't work that way in the economy, doesn't work that way in national security, but healthcare people instinctively, Democrats are the people I go to when I want to get taken care of. And the other thing is that, you know, losing health insurance, that's a bad story in the newspaper. Cancer victim can't get the chemo, that's bad story. a really bad story. Not good. <clears throat> Asthma patient can't get them inhaler. Bad story. Yeah, no. totally true. All right. Well, I guess all we can do now is watch the, you know, watch us walk off the wing of the plane into either a certain oblivion or something else. Who knows? Maybe the plane isn't even off the ground yet. Who knows? All right, Jonathan, thanks for, for being with us, man. And Arthur, of course. And uh, we will be right back. We have a very nice show. So please stick around. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as usual by... Jason Lincoln. And funny. for the first time making his debut on So That Happened, so happy. we have a fellow with the Open Markets Committee at the New America Foundation, a man named Matt Stoller. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks, guys. So we wanted to have you on the show today because about a month ago, you wrote an article in The Atlantic called How Democrats Lost Their Populist Soul. And uh, I think for a lot of people, that was sort of like a, a wake-up moment. Wait, what do you mean? I thought I thought Democrats always had a populist soul. What, so, so what are you talking about? What happened here? So this is a story about how the Democratic Party was the party of the people and then made a specific set of ideological and political choices in the mid-70s to become an anti-populist party. So I started the story with a 1975 political fight 
over the seniority system in the House of Representatives. An old congressman named Wright Patman, who had first gotten into Congress in 1929 and had been a Texas sharecropper and was an old populist, was the chairman of the banking committee, hated bankers, hated monopoly, uh, really thought big business was a threat to democracy, also a rural populist and had voted for segregation and had supported the war in Vietnam, he was dethroned from his committee chairmanship in 1975 by a new generation of firebrand liberal Democrats who had been elected in 1974 as a reaction to Watergate. They were known as Watergate babies, and many of them were famous, like uh, Tim Wirth, uh, George Miller, uh, Gary Hart, although he was in the Senate, Chris Dodd. Uh, and then the one who was a Watergate baby but didn't quite win that year was was Bill Clinton. And so these guys are reacting to what? So you, you say Patman sort of represents this old populist wing of the party. What what were these new guys thinking about? What why did they want to break with that? So in 19 so this was the kind of campus activist generation and they had been weaned on uh on on campus politics and an anti-Vietnam war uh, pro kind of culturally democratic uh, civil rights feminism type of politics. And they didn't have a thought about concentration of power and wealth. So Patman had been reared in uh, the 1920s and teens when he was growing up and coming of political age. He saw the trusts and the robber barons as the primary political obstacle to a just and democratic society, and then later on, the Nazis. And so his politics were organized around the political economy of authoritarian politics. And in the 1970s, big business and big banks basically hadn't been a problem for 40 years. And so you saw this new generation that was looking at the problems of inflation and the problems of the war in Vietnam and Nixon and executive power, and they had a new left libertarian approach to the world. Now, at the same time, and this is really important, uh, it was a set of ideas that really changed in the 1970s. So again, to go back to Patman, Patman was really a Brandeisian. Louis Brandeis was a Supreme Court justice who created this notion of, really updated the Jeffersonian model of, of yeoman farmer democracy for the 20th century, which he called industrial liberty, things like uh, protecting your savings, uh, labor law, uh, regulation of stock markets, anti-monopoly laws. That was all very Brandeisian, and it was the kind of stuff that Patton carried for 46 years. In 1970. In the 1970s, you saw the Chicago School Libertarians emerge, and they attacked Brandeisian visions of the economy by saying that big businesses uh, were were property and needed to be protected like property. It, property wasn't just the savings of individuals or small farmers. And they changed the, the nature of what we think about our, our commercial society. And at the same time as the libertarians on the right were emerging, you also saw the emergence of the the sort of this weird form of left-wing socialism on the left, which was really the, the godfather of that was John Kenneth Galbraith, but uh, Lester Thoreau, Robert Reich, Paul Krugman, the neo-Keynesians were part of this model where they thought that big business was inevitable, was a more efficient, and that if you lay regulatory mandates on big business around cultural democratic issues like uh, diversity mandates and and so on and so forth. That yeah. that's the best way to organize a socially just society. So in essence, in essence, what you're describing is sort of a, a shift in the target of skepticism on the Democratic Party from uh, 
<clears throat> big trusts and monopoly power to uh, more cultural issues. But I think one war, of the, I mean, the Vietnam War was not awesome. Definitely, definitely. But it seems to me that one of the lessons we're learning in this election is that if the Democratic Party's uh, skeptical eye shifted over the course of those decades, what continued with ordinary people who were once part of the Democratic coalition, coalition is that their skepticism didn't shift. They still harbor this sort of populist heart that the Democrats consciously have uncoupled themselves from. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people are people, and they Ameri- there's something in our DNA as Americans to want liberty in both the commercial and the political sphere. And what these guys did in the 60s and 70s is they, they rewrote the story of America in our own minds. And the story of America for hundreds of years had been this story of, or at least part of the story, it had been expanding liberty um, through the commercial sphere, right? Increasing amounts of liberty for more and more people uh, through open markets and your ability to own a little piece of land, run your own business, run your own farm, whatever. A lot of racism in there, a lot of sexism, but more rights for more people, and that those and those rights were commercial. The new left in the late 60s and mid-70s rewrote that story, and they said the story is uh, is about personal liberation, cultural liberation, which is very important, of course, but it's a different story. And so we're living with the, the different narrative today. And the financial crisis in 2008 and then the emergence of a whole series of problems and then Donald Trump has really brought back that this older tradition, uh, the Democrats as the party of the people, working people, small farmers, small businessmen, that that model works and that without it, you flow to a more autocratic system of governance. So let's zoom in on something that happened more recently. Uh, Donald Trump uh, wrought this uh, deal with Carrier right. uh, to retain a certain number of jobs uh, in exchange for, uh, I guess, some plum tax breaks for Carrier. And what we're just what we're seeing since then is we're seeing a combination of sort of mild enthusiasm for this, not just among Donald Trump's coalition, but among the broader electorate. Um, so what what kind of what kind of insight can you can you can you lend to what just happened and what might happen now in the in the future for a Donald Trump presidency? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the deal was. As far as I understand it, it was $7 million over 10 years, which is $700,000 a year. It was state incentives. It's usually – it's a standard – it's a pretty standard deal, and they saved, I don't know, 700 jobs, something like that. Yeah. Uh, And basically the reason is because – it's not because Trump bribed them, a little bit of bribes there. It's mostly because he threatened them by removing federal contracts. With their parent company. Right, United United Technologies, Technologies, right. So – that is a uh, – it is an aggressive use of state power to change the nature of how corporations act. Um, now, what's really – it's a really strange and interesting development, potentially dangerous. But um, it also reflects the hollowness of the last four years of policymaking. So if you look at the way that – New Dealers thought about the corporation. There was this important speech that FDR gave called the Commonwealth Club Address in 1932. And he said, the problem we have politically is that big corporations are 
are public trusts in some sense. They were also private property. Shareholders do own property, but they have a right to reasonable return. But they don't have the right to organize their corporation over their workers and communities and customers however they want. He called trust, the men who run the trust, he called them princes of property. Right? He didn't call them businessmen. He called them princes of property. And the argument was that that ownership of, of property um, – like savings or or uh, you know a fork or or whatever small bit of land that that was property, but that that corporations had public obligations stewardship stewardship yeah and that the government uh, national security community which was common defense and also unions a whole set of democratic institutions implemented they had a kind of ownership stake over big business. Uh, antitrust laws and so on and so forth was were the and stock ownership or stock market regulation and so on and so forth. That was all a manifestation of this basic view that big business was uh, needed to be constrained by different slices of society, having some ownership as well as shareholders. Um, and that changed in the 1970s. So, so uh, Michael Jansen, who was a, a libertarian like Tom, like uh, Milton Friedman and George Stigler, said that that democracy was a threat to big business. And he said this knowing that it meant that we were going to move to a more autocratic society. And he he was like, "This is we've got to deal with this problem that we have with political democracy threatening our wonderful big corporations." And so they they did that, and they said we have to redefine property. That whole FDR model of thinking about big business is having public obligations, that is ridiculous. A, sh- uh, a company is just like your savings or a, an object that you own. It is a trinket. It's, trin- it's a trinket. It, t- it can be used to generate cash. It can be smashed. The, the pension obligations, all that stuff, to just, it's just about smashing the, these institutions on which we rely for our you know, for our nutritional systems and transportation and everything we need. Those are just property and can be used to just grab cash. And that's the model of organizing our corporations that we have. And so whether it's Reagan, whether it's Bush, Clinton, um, George W. Bush or Obama, they all look at Carrier and they think, well, we cannot interfere with the right of Carrier to destroy these communities, as opposed to saying that these communities have a right over the the economic and commercial institutions in those communities. It's a very different understanding of rights and freedom. So now along comes Donald Trump, right? So Obama does nothing for Carrier, and he explains to Carrier, hey, um, sorry, guys, learn to code or whatever, right? You're, right. You're, yeah. um, and Trump comes in and says, I'm going to threaten and I'm going to bribe. I'm not going to make policy changes. I'm not going to change the nature of corporations and property. But I am going to say to every big business out there that Donald Trump now owns a little slice of your company. And that ownership structure takes the form of him being able to embarrass and harass that company unless it does what he wants, which is to make him look good. Now, this is a potentially extremely dangerous manifestation of autocracy. But you have to understand that it is being layered onto a commercial system that to a lot of people is already autocratic. Those workers have no ability to affect the institution that dominates their lives. And then all of a sudden comes a strong man and says, I will help you a little bit. I will force them to give you crumbs. And they're not choosing between the rule of law and a democracy and Donald Trump. They're choosing between, you know, corporate management speak, autocratic, we're going to destroy your families, we're going to destroy your communities to this other guy who's like, I'm going to come in and maybe help you and maybe I'm going to con you. And that's the choice they're facing. And that's what we have to recognize when we're thinking about the Democratic Party and our political system. Democrats kind of walked into it. Matt Stoller, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, we look forward to having you back. 
Excellent. Um, and uh, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we're back. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, right now, we are joined uh, by Arthur Delaney. Hi. Our good friend. And uh, studious mensch today. You got your glasses on like me. Glasses, guys. We're setting the stage <laughs> that you can't see. And uh, we're also very happy to have back uh, Huffington Post uh, foreign policy reporter Akbar Ahmed with us. Hi. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about some uh, interesting diplomatic moves, I guess we should call them. Uh, undertaken by the president-elect in recent weeks. And I wanted to begin with uh, Pakistan because uh, that's something you've already uh, really endeavored to cover. Um, He took a phone call, and they had, you know, a good conversation. And so why should I be feeling uh, at all weird about the fact that the president-elect was talking to uh, Pakistani officials? You know, Pakistan is, you know, uh, uh, somewhat problematic, but still key ally in the global war on terror. It seems natural that the president-elect wanted to start a relationship with that country. It is a putative ally. Um, I think there's a number of things that are quite concerning. One of them is we still aren't sure if the president-elect understands the situation in Pakistan as it stands. He talks a lot about wanting to withdraw U.S. military involvement. Does that mean he wants to take out the 8,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan? And is he aware of what Pakistan might do to Afghanistan once there are 8,000 U.S. troops there? It's also unclear. He said, you know, you're a great man. I've heard so much about you to Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. Pakistan's Army Chief Raheel Sharif is very well recognized and respected it seems to me that he may not have known which Sharif he was talking to. I mean, this, these kind of basic things are really scary. Ex- how ex- are you explain gonna... why that was not clear from the readout from that, the we didn't, that we yeah. got from Pakistan. Not so, from... Uh, yeah, so that was a Pakistani readout. Uh, there's been three readouts of this so far. There's the initial Pakistani readout, which sounds like a verbatim transcript of Donald Trump's remarks, saying, you're fabulous, you're fabulous, you're great, you're amazing, you're wonderful, wow. Then there was the Trump team readout, which was a very sober, you know, President-elect spoke to Prime Minister of Pakistan, cooperation. Then the Pakistani government was like, oh, shit. And then they issued readout number three, which said uh, the President-elect had a good conversation with Prime Minister of Pakistan, blah, blah, but retained release number one. So there are two offerings from the Pakistani government. The first first readout sounded like he had just met the Rockettes backstage at Radio City (laughs) Music Hall. um... Yeah, it it was weird. I mean, Nawaz Sharif is like, a pretty ineffectual leader. He has never been praised this way by anyone ever, right? So for this to come from the U.S. president-elect is a little nuts and unexpected. Well, explain the two Sharifs. Yeah, so there's two Sharifs. Uh, There's Nawaz, who's prime minister, and there's Raheel, who just stepped down as army chief. The really scary thing is Pakistan has been ruled by the military for more than half of its existence. Uh, The military has de facto ruled the country again since 2014, although we have an elected prime minister, elected parliament, all the veneer of a democracy... And Raheel Sharif is uh, is seen as a counter-terror expert. 
That's debatable. I don't happen to believe the Pakistani military has done a lot to counter terror, but he has definitely identified the threat, right? So American officials love him. Obama administration officials love him. Trump said, I've heard so much about you. You wouldn't have heard about Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. You would have heard about Chief of Army Staff, now retired, Raheel Sharif. Okay, so to what extent is the potential gaffe here, like, destabilizing, upsetting, and dangerous? And to what extent is it basically King Ralph doing King Ralph's, you know, John Goodman, like, playing the piano at some tea party? Like, that's what people said they loved about Donald Trump, that he's just knocking over false pieties. I think the scary thing is that, you know, we've always known the circus had come to town in many, in many foreign capitals, with Nawaz Sharif's cabinet, with any, a lot of governments. The assumption was that the U.S. had a certain stature, expertise, knowledge, so that calls like this would not happen, and the Pakistani government, inadequate as it is, you know, would be, would understand that there are restraints, right? That, like, you cannot get up and say, and the Americans promised us this, this, and this, and here's how they praise us back, you know, behind the scenes. What's scary is that diplomacy, it's really fun and sexy to say, let's just do everything public and threaten people, and, and you come groveling to me, and I will hector my people and rally them against you. That's not how deals get made. Things like the Iran deal took years and years and years of back-channel stuff. If one single transcript of John Kerry talking to an Iranian official and saying, we don't actually believe Iran is that much of a threat to the U.S., were ever released, none of that would have happened. So the scary thing is you can't accomplish things. Um, so in other words, it's an ominous sign for how for the how Trump administration conduct. will conduct diplomacy going right. forward. It was revelatory also because it showed us what Trump might be saying, you know, in context where we can't hear him and, and he's not going to tell us. The, and the revelation is that he sounds the same. Yeah. Like, you're great. You're great. And, and without, without thinking, <laughs> right? Like, are you great? I don't know. So, to, you know, one of the things I have to say is that one way you prevent this is you get briefed by yes. State Department officials. And there's been painful uh, – there's, there's been a painful amount of evidence to suggest that, that Trump is not either receiving or – being willing to to meet with his with the people who are supposed to give him this advice. Yeah, I mean, he also doesn't believe in the intelligence community. I mean, Adam Schiff, who's the top Democrat on the intelligence community, issued a statement just today, uh, Thursday when we're recording, saying it is unbelievable that the president-elect is saying the intelligence agent community is lying about Russia involvement in the election. But he is. I mean, he is saying that 17 U.S. intelligence agencies have told the public a lie. And so he could also turn around and say the State Department would tell me lies. So why would I ever take that briefing on Pakistan? On, you know, he's called the leader of Kazakhstan. He's called Putin multiple times. He'd just say, well, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And that's exacerbated by the fact that he thinks the entire Republican national security elite, you know, they've been blacklisted in his administration. Now, uh, this week, it was his call with the president of Taiwan Mm -hmm. that became the big fuss. Yeah. And so... I have to say, it's it's maybe a little bit difficult to explain to people why this is kind of a fuss. Because, like, to a lot of people's mind, Taiwan has been under the thumb of China. Okay? And we don't like the idea that China has anyone under its thumb, at least at all Taiwan. What's the harm in signaling to Taiwan that we have your back? I think, actually, that... I know I'm over... I know that's... Yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I'm being willfully no, yeah. stupid... 
No, no, I mean, I think that, that the reaction yeah. was a little unmerited. I think the reaction was hyperbolic to anticipate, like, a war with China. China has a lot of money tied up in this country. It doesn't want it to collapse. Yeah, people, um, were, people were proceeding from this phone call to a mushroom cloud. Which is not, not going to happen over Taiwan. And, and I think what we really need to remember is, like, I go back to the idea of, like, this is not normal, which has been raised a lot in regards to Trump, right? So it is totally normal. We've seen it and we've dealt with it that Republicans have supported Taiwan. For decades, Republicans have been saying, strengthen ties to Taiwan, sell them more arms, be their friends. Bob Dole. Bob Dole? Well, well Bob Dole has other <laughs> interesting connections, like his lobbying contract with the Taiwanese government at age 93, which is kind of sad. But, the, I mean, that was that, one... one, yeah. one Explanation for this was that right. it wasn't Trump going off the handle. It was clever lobbying by Bob Dole, who is paid by Taiwan yes. to help them diplomatically. And it's not, you know, it's not super out of the bounds, out of bounds for like a Republican, any Republican to say, I want to have a relation with Taiwan. George W. Bush said that. What's weird is that Trump is doing this again without receiving any briefings and knowing what we know about Trump's own kind of proclivities and his reaction to people who might be advising him about how to do things. That's what's scary. What's scary is not the move, it's his approach to the move. And he's like taking the call on the same phone that he writes tweets from at 5 a.m. Right, and it's also, we do we know if these are secure lines yet? We don't. And there's also, of course, the specter of these, uh, the impetus behind these kind of calls really being about Donald Trump's Trump business holdings, um, which is going to be something that I think... I can see us if he does not divest from his current business holdings, it's going to be a specter over every single international call he makes, every single diplomatic deal that gets made. Uh, anytime he ventures forth on the world stage to conduct any kind of business at all, it's going to be one of the wrinkles to all these relationships. Which in itself is really sad because the, the quality of our kind of foreign policy conversations already suffered so much from thinking that like think tanks or former diplomats are paid by foreign governments. And so... You know, this isn't a valid point to raise. You're just saying it because you have money involved. So while something like, like opening to Taiwan maybe is an interesting idea, let's have a, a conversation about it. Instead, it becomes a story about Trump's personal enrichment attempts and, and the actual like valuable policy idea to the American interest is gone. Right. Because we're just thinking about, you know. This kind of understores a point that ethicists have made, which is to say that the real reason you should divest your fortune isn't because you're getting battered by the left in their talking points, but because it's inhibiting you from becoming an effective president right. and potentially being reelected. Right. And potentially, you know, making people's lives safer. Right. All right. Well, uh, so far, that's where we're at diplomatically right. in the pre-Trump era. Uh, we'll see how things go. I imagine we'll have a lots to talk about in the future. Um, Akbar, thank you for thank, uh, you thank you for being on the show once again. And Arthur, you're on the show all the time. I don't know how, how many times I have to keep thanking you. Throughout the King Ralph era. All right. Well, my gratitude is ongoing and continual to everyone. Uh, uh, we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. Our new editor-in-chief is Lydia Polgreen. Welcome, Lydia. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by the New America Foundation's Matt Stoller, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Schulberg. 
So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening and good luck to all of you. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.